Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. This morning, Mike McKee, drumroll, fantastic <laughs> guest around a table with us to talk about Fed policy. Yes, and thank you very much, uh, John, because we are pleased to welcome Neil Kashkari, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, to the table today. Thank you for coming in, uh, making the trip all the way to New York, only for us, I'm sure. Nothing else, Mike. Uh, nothing <laughs> else. There would be nothing else this morning and, uh, except for Bloomberg surveillance. Uh, you're kind of known as the guy who is the most hawkish. I don't want to characterize you exactly now, given uh, how things have changed over the last couple of months, but you have left open the possibility of doing more. How much more would you think the economy might need? Are we talking about just that one leftover move from the uh, dot plot in September? Or if you have to start raising again, do you have to go farther probably? Well, uh, first of all, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me. People are looking for certainty, and I wish I could give that certainty, provide it. There's been so much, uh, so much that's unusual about the reopening of the economy and the dynamics that led to the high inflation and how long it has taken and the dynamics as the disinflation process has taken hold. I wish I knew. Uh, we have to let the inflation data guide us, the labor market data guide us. You know, just to point out the obvious, our forecasts have not been great over the past couple of years. And so we just need to, we're all committed. Everybody on the FOMC is committed that 2% is our inflation target. We have to get inflation back down to 2% over a reasonable period of time. Ultimately, the economy will tell us how much is needed to get there. And I just don't know. Well, at what point do you think you would believe you have tightened enough or not tightened enough? What is it that you're looking for? Well, I'll give you some good news is that Core PCE on a three-month basis is running about 2.5%. And it's lower than the six-month data. It's lower than the one-year data. So that suggests that the disinflation is real. If we continue to see inflation numbers of that range, 2.5% or lower on a go-forward basis, that would tell me, okay, we are now on a path back to 2% inflation. But three-month data is still only three-month data. And if we see that start to tick back up again, that would tell me our job is not yet done. Tick back up means what? In other words, we get another couple of CPI reports and a PCE report before your next meeting. A couple of tenths higher, uh, you know, the chairman and others say it's going to be lumpy. Uh, or does it have to be a significant move? In other words, what are you thinking about for December? Well, I think we'd look at, as the chairman always says, we look at all of the data. So what surprises over the past few months? We've been surprised by how strong American consumers have been. Consumer spending has held up remarkably well. Uh, we've been surprised by GDP growth. When, when activity continues to run this hot, 
That makes me question, is policy as tight as we assume that it currently is? So if you saw inflation tick back up and you saw continued very strong economic activity on the real side of the economy, that would tell me, okay, we might need to do more. So it's hard for me to say this one data point needs to be here. I would be looking at the suite of data. Did we outsource doing more to financial markets in the Pardon last me? week? Have we outsourced doing oh. more to financial markets? You know, this, this is a very... Uh, complicated question on what has been driving the long end of the yield curve. Uh, some people point to term premium, and I always joke that term premium is the economist version of dark matter. It's the residual of all the stuff we can't explain. It's not that our models are wrong, it's the dark matter is out there. So that's the term premium, and some people say, well, that's driven by fiscal. Uh, if it was fiscal driving the term premium, I would have expected to see a weak dollar. Usually when investors are worried about a country's fiscal position, their currency weakens. Our currency has been quite strong. It makes me wonder, is it really fiscal driving the term premium? Another possibility is the path of policy over the next few years. That could explain both the stronger dollar and the weaker stock market going into the last meeting. Um, another one is that maybe the neutral rate is higher, or maybe it's a combination of all three of these. And so these are things that we're spending a lot of time trying to understand what the markets are doing. But just speaking for myself, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying which of those three it is, because which of those three it is determines what it means for policy. If it is the term premium, then it is doing some work for the Fed. But if it's the neutral rate or if it's the forward guidance of the path of policy, then we would actually have to follow through to preserve those rates. So how did this line end up in the statement? And I'll share it with our audience. The tighter financial and credit conditions for households and businesses are likely to weigh on economic activity, hiring and inflation. Where's that coming from? Well, that's been there for a long time. I mean, that's been in there since the Silicon Valley Bank episode and the banking stresses leading to some, some tightening of credit conditions across the economy. So I think that that's right. Uh, I, I, for one, don't say that that means the recent moves in the yield curve. How fluid is that assessment? Can that change from month to month, meeting to meeting? Because some of those comments around that has inspired quite a move in this market over the last week. Well, you know, one of the things about the statement... Uh, it's, we always have to be careful about putting things into the statement because they tend to be long-lived and it's hard to pull them out of the statement because as soon as you take something out, then all of a sudden people say, oh my gosh, they're declaring that all the banking stresses are over, as an example. And so, um, you know, I would look at all of the range of commentary that you get, look at what the chairman says, look at his press conference uh, to get a read of the thoughts of the committee. You said that people want certainty and that you can't give it to them, and I understand that. But people don't just want certainty. They also want some sort of guiding philosophy. Do you think that Fed Chair Powell has outlined some sort of guiding philosophy on where the bar is to cut rates, on where the bar is to raise them further? Well, I think he's, he's articulated very clearly that we're committed to getting back to 2% inflation, right? There's been some chatter amongst economists that maybe we should raise the inflation target. I think he's done a great job saying that is not on the table. We're not going to do that. We're going to get inflation back to 2%, and we're going to let the data guide us. We've moved very aggressively. We've made a lot of progress on inflation. Uh, we're not done yet, meaning inflation is not back to our target, and if we need to do more, we will. There seemed to be a feeling in markets that the bar to cut rates has been lowered over the past week or two weeks, that suddenly not only are we reaching a pause and have we seen a peak in, in, uh, in the Fed funds rate, but that also the Fed will cut next year, maybe surgically, Neil Dutta is talking about that and he's coming up next. Do you want to push back against that? Do you think that, that the bar to cut is still just as high as it was? I have no idea where market participants are getting that. There's no discussion amongst me and any of my colleagues about when we're going to start preparing to cut rates. The only thing that's been talked about at all is that at some point, when inflation is well on its way back down, 
if we didn't back off a little bit, then real rates would be getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's, that's well, real, but that's math. But is there enough weakness currently in the market, in the economy, I should say, to give you that sense at this point? Look at the last GDP print. I mean, does anybody look at that and think, oh my gosh, the economy, it, we, for the last 12 months, GDP has been very strong. The labor market continues to be quite robust. Yes, the unemployment rate has ticked up to 3.9%, but we've also seen a huge surge of labor supply, which is really positive, come online. So I'm looking at this, I'm seeing consumers that are strong. My air, by the way, my airplane that I came here on was 100% full yesterday. It's gonna be 100% full today. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that the economy is weakening. Well, whether you go higher or not, uh, you are on board for longer. And so you must have modeled out some idea of how long you would need to leave rates unchanged uh, before you could get down to a level low enough that uh, you could take your foot off the brake uh, a little bit. Uh, how long do you think you'll be at 55 uh, into 2024? Well, I think it's going to depend. If we continue to see inflation prints similar to the ones we've seen the last few months, you know, and we end up with a, a year over year at 2.5% uh, core inflation and it continues to trend down, that, that constellation would give me evidence to say, hey, we ought to look at, should we start backing off just so the real policy isn't getting tighter and tighter and tighter because we're clearly on our way back down to 2%. But again, I don't want to just point to one data series we will be looking at the suite of data to try to get a read of where the economy is headed. Well, uh, not just data. You talk to businesses in your district all the time. What are they telling you now about their view of growth and hiring and pricing going forward? It's uh, moderating. So the labor market is still tight in my district. Uh, people, especially in the Dakotas, really have a hard time finding workers. But in Minnesota, uh, it's still a tight labor market, but it's not as tight as it was six months ago. It's not as tight as it was a year ago. So that kind of maps to the national data that we're seeing of a gently cooling labor market, uh, but one that's still very, very warm. Um, same thing with economic activity. Depending on the sector, uh, they're saying, hey, we feel pretty good about things. We're a little cautious about the future. Obviously, they, they watch the news. They read the news. There's a lot of uh, economic anxiety that is reported on that people you know, factor that into their own thinking and their own business planning. So I think the outlooks are still uh, optimistic, but it's cautious optimism. Well, are they still raising prices or think they need to? So it's funny, uh, they're still, they still by and large have some pricing power, more than they had before the pandemic, but not as much pricing power as they had six months or a year ago. Can we finish on housing? Sure. In the space of three years, we've had record low interest rates and the highest rates in several decades. Is this housing market broken? Well, I think since the pandemic, we have structurally underbuilt the number of units that we need to meet our growing population. And that's, that's the factor. And that's really about regulation at the local level that are creating barriers to more supply coming in. The rate environment will settle out over time. But structurally, we have to actually bring a lot more supply online to meet Americans' needs. You say over needs. time, but it could be like 20, 30 years. I think this is the issue here. The legacy of this FOMC could well be a generation of people locked out of the housing market. Why do you say that? There could be a generation of people with two, three percent mortgages that never sell their home. Yeah, I don't know. People end up needing to move. It's funny when people don't sell their home because they're locked into a low mortgage. Uh, that's less supply, but that's also one less buyer. Most people who buy homes are leaving another home. And so that affects both the supply side and the, buy and the demand side. Which is why I said a generation locked down, because I'm renting and can't buy. So I'm not selling anything. Yeah. And that's the generation I'm talking about, that generation specifically. Are you concerned that could be the legacy of this FOMC? 
No, I think the legacy of this FOMC is that we've dealt with the pandemic very aggressively. Then we were surprised by very high inflation, but then we moved very aggressively to bring the inflation back down. I want to ask you uh, about a story on the Bloomberg Terminal today about uh, all the financial CEOs from the U.S. over in Hong Kong sounding very doer and down about the prospects for the economy. Uh, they suggest that things are pretty fragile right now, both in the economy and the markets, given everything that's going on around the world uh, and in the shadow banking system as well as theirs. How worried are you? Well, I mean, we're always worried about things that can happen all around the world. We've got teams of people looking at different scenarios around the world. Ultimately, we have to focus on what we can control. Uh, you know, geopolitics, the, when Hamas attacked Israel, the first thing we thought of is what's it going to do to the oil market? What's it going to do to commodity prices? Remarkably, the response so far has been muted. Uh, but that's something we're obviously paying close attention to. But the broader geopolitical issues are just so far outside of our bounds of forecasting. You know, we have a hard enough time forecasting inflation trying to forecast where geopolitics is going. Um, we just have to focus on what we can control. Oil prices dropped, Bramo. I mean, that's the, the crazy thing about the last month, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. And this is the reason why trying to get it right is just impossible. And then trying to get the idea of a Fed put and whether they're going to respond. I'm just saying, people are talking about that now. So you know. We were talking about it in the last few hours. Yes, this exactly. This morning on this program. Neil, always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you for sir. Having me. Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Fed president, alongside Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Neil Dutta, the head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro. Neil, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's go straight there, because my IB was lighting up with messages from you. <laughs> We're not thinking about tapering two months later. We're a long way from neutral, cutting a month later. What do you think is going on within the FOMC? Where do you think this is going? Well, I think uh, I, I agree that um, it doesn't pay much to forecast right now. It's important just to look at the data as it's coming to you. And uh, so I do sympathize with that. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, the unemployment rate is up above the Fed's um, forecast for this year. And um, that's the first time that's happened since March of 2022. Now, you know, we're in, when you're in the, the thick of it, it's hard to know whether that represents the start of something much more onerous or whether it's just the normalization of the labor market. But I think for the Fed, I think the doves on the FOMC, and remember, um, 
you know, President Kashkari, he's tends to lean on the hawkish side of, of the consensus at, at, at the Fed. I think for the doves, they have all the ammunition they need to basically put the hawks in a casket, okay? I mean, I, I think that's the way I would think about it. I mean, you can point to the pickup in productivity and what that's done to unit labor costs. You can, you can point to what Powell has said, right? I mean, when, when central bankers use proceed carefully, risk management, that's code for doing nothing. And, you know, finally, I mean, the employment report was probably um, understating payroll growth. That's my view. I mean, there was a lot of strike activity and so okay. forth. But at the end of the day, average hourly earnings are running just over 3% at an annual rate over the last several months. So I don't think the hawks on the committee, frankly, can use the labor markets as a rationale to be hawkish anymore. So that is over. And so you, I think the doves can basically say that the labor markets have been rebalanced. And if they can say that, just implicitly, it means that the door is a little bit cracked open for, for a cut. And, you know, the point I'm making to you is, you know, Jay Powell, it wouldn't be the first time he basically, uh, you know, flipped on a dime. I mean, we're a long way from neutral. I mean, a few months later, he's cutting rates. We're not even thinking about thinking about tapering or, or hiking. And then mm. we're hiking and tapering basically in the same month. So, um, you know, to me, the fact that they're not talking about it is irrelevant. Um, it's also in their SCP for next year. You the question the is phrase, whether- surgical yeah. cuts. What are surgical cuts? Basically a few cuts uh, to stabilize the economy. I mean, I think the, 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 the issue is, is the extent to which um, cutting uh, quickly translates into rapid economic stabilization. So, I mean, for, as an example, I mean, let's see what happens with mortgage purchase demand over the next couple of weeks. We've, we've seen mortgage rates basically come down to what, like 7%? Okay, wait, I try, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Six months ago, you were talking about way more economic strength in the U.S. economy than people had expected. Now you're talking about strategic or surgical cuts by the Federal Reserve to stabilize the economy. Are you saying that they are warranted because the economy no, is No, I don't think that they are. Than, I mean, part of the tension, expected. Lisa, is that my job isn't to tell people what I think the Fed should do. My job is to try to get into their head and figure out what they will do. I mean, if I was there, would I be? I would probably be more hawkish than the consensus on the FOMC. But I'm not there. Well, but does this mean that you think the consequence of surgical cuts to fortify the economy will be prolonged inflation? Yes. Okay, so then how do you sort of arrange around that? Sort of what is the inflation rate? How do you sort of lean into uh, the, the rally that we've seen in the bond market and say, wait a second, you guys have gotten ahead of your skis based on the game theory that the Fed is playing and the way that they're likely to do surgical well, cuts? I, I don't know that the bond market's getting ahead of itself. I think the bond market is sniffing out that the distribution of risks have changed. I don't know what the Fed may do next. I mean, that, that's, that's what I think the bond market is doing. And I think... Bond market investors are right to do that because, as I say, you know, you think about it basically three prongs, right? The labor market, inflation, and then financial conditions. If the Fed can look at the labor market and say the labor markets are rebalanced, okay, that's check. Done. You, don't have, you can't use that anymore as a reason to be hawkish. So, if anything, if the unemployment rate's not going up a little bit, the distribution of risks are that they would cut because the labor markets and right if the labor markets are thawing that's going to give them increased confidence that inflation will thaw um, and so and then finally if that's the case 
they're not going to be particularly concerned about the easing in financial conditions that you've seen since the last uh, in the last week. Which is what we've been talking about right. through this morning, whether they are going to tolerate the easing we've seen over the last week, and it feels like perhaps they will. Help me, work with me here. It feels like to me that you believe the world might have changed post-pandemic versus pre-pandemic. Do you sense that they still believe we're still in the same old world pre-pandemic? I do. I mean, I, I mean, if you listen to someone like New York Fed President John Williams, even even uh, Chair Powell, I mean, there's not much. There's quite a bit of reluctance to just say that, you know, neutral rates are higher. I mean, why do you think that is, Neil? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that maybe in their mind, uh, Things things haven't changed. I mean, all of I mean, you saw Powell talk about this at, at the at the press conference last week. I mean, oh well, if we get a pickup in potential growth, it's a temporary pickup in potential growth, then we'll go back down. So if if you don't think that the world has fundamentally changed, then you're going to be more sort of um, cognizant of over tightening risk, right? Like, so if the unemployment rate is starting to go up, you may have thought, well, maybe you overdid it. So you might be more willing to cut sooner as a result. So are you more bullish on the U.S. economy, but also expect inflation to remain higher? And the Fed, when people look back, this will be considered a policy error that they weren't hawkish enough. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be something I could be saying in 2025. What would you point to if you had this conversation right now? And I would love to get you around the table next time I have a Fed official to work <laughs> through some of these issues. But what would you that point sounds to dangerous. as the number one thing that indicates to you that the world has changed? versus pre-pandemic that ultimately they don't believe in? What would you point to? Well, I mean, the first is just look at, let's look at the obvious. I mean, you've done a lot and yet the economy is still kind of hanging in there. I would say that things like household formation rates are running twice the rate they did after the financial crisis. I mean, to me, I think it's, it's much easier to tell the story about why the post-financial crisis period was actually the anomaly than than not. So I think we're actually going back to the old normal um, more so than anything else. Obviously, you think about all those people during the financial crisis period or the years after it that were saving up for retirement. A lot of them have now since retired and they're now dissaving, which is, um, you know, implies higher neutral rates. You think about income inequality. It was something that we were talking about all throughout the 2010s. Well, it's coming down now. People at the lower end of the uh, of the wage spectrum are seeing more rapid growth in their wages. You see more increased uh, sort of union activity and unions getting big wins for blue collar workers. I mean, these are not things I mean, and those folks have a much higher propensity to spend. And so um, I think it's um, it's not right, in my view, to say that that things haven't changed. But if that's what the Fed believes, then you have to be uh, recognizing what that implies for what they might do later. And so I think just because they're not talking about cuts now <laughs> does not mean they won't be talking about cuts in three, six months. That's, that's, that should be within the realm of possibility. And I think the markets, frankly, I'm not willing to fight the move yet. I mean, okay. Now, a clinic, as always. You know you're one of my faves. I think everyone knows that. Neil Dutta of Renaissance Macro. Neil, thank you. Joining us now, Katie Kaminsky, Chief Research Strategist over at Alpha Simplex. Katie, it's the number one question for us. Are you still short treasuries? Yes. Why? Uh, well, this is because for trend falling, it's not just about a couple of days. It's really about persistent trends in the market. And I just want to point out, and this is something interesting, Trend falling signals have been net short for nine quarters. This is the first time in many decades that this has been the case. And so the reason I'm pausing right now is because we've been saying short, short, short all year. And for the first time, it's starting to feel like we already got that short come through. 
what's next? What does the market do? Now buyers are coming in because yields are at interesting levels. They're probably thinking, maybe we finally hit that point. Do you think something changed fundamentally to lead to that in the last few weeks? I do, and then I think that the data has come out to support the narrative for investors. But I also think a narrative narrative that has made sense to me is that investors have woken up to the idea that 5% yields, at some point there's a buying point where you think, well, there's a chance this could actually go down. And now you start to see this equilibrium occur where you're seeing the disinverted curve, which is something we've been looking for since the beginning of the year. So, Katie, just to put a bow on this, are you now not short treasuries and actually starting to see value, particularly if yields get up to that 5% level in the 10-year? So we're still short in terms of the overall frequency that we see signals, but we are seeing consolidation in those signals. So there's a reduction in that particular conviction. But what I will say is that I'm seeing more and more positive signals on higher frequency. Um, And so I think on the shorter term, you're going to see more and more potential buying uh, for treasuries. Uh, But I do want to remind everyone, inflation is still an issue. Rates could be higher for longer, so there's still really a good chance that we're going to see a lot of this volatility instead of a new trend, per se, that starts to emerge yet. This raises this question of which particular data points are going to be the real action drivers, like what we saw over the past 10 days. Is it going to be basically every inflation read that we get? Or do you really buy into this idea that it's Treasury supply that's been dictating a lot of the volumes and a lot of the angst that we felt over the past month? It's really interesting that you bring this up, Lisa, because we've been talking about the supply issue. I mean, how often do people actually talk about supply? They're only talking about it because I think people are trying to understand the equilibrium of where people sit and what yield should cost. I mean, what should be the right yield? And I think from our side, on the technical side, what we're looking for is potential breakouts so that we're seeing a steeper curve at some point. Our view is is it's gonna depend on really what happens with the economic data of whether we end up with tighter conditions or if we actually see something very extreme where we actually saw um, higher yields again. That to me seems very unlikely right now, but I think it's really a point to start watching every data point to see which direction the yield market is going to go or which direction the yields go, because it's definitely an inflection point for hey, me. Katie, we're going to catch up with Neil Kashgari yeah. in about 20 minutes' time. I think we're all looking forward to this conversation. There is this second paragraph in the statement that they put out last week on tighter financial conditions. It reads as follows. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Tighter financial and credit conditions for households and businesses are likely to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. Could you still write that same sentence today? after the move we've seen in the last week. What's that a judgment on? The movement we've seen in the last month, the last six months, what do you think it is? Well, I think the challenge is these numbers come in at different frequencies. Last week we had a massive buying, um, but this could also be somewhat of a relief rally given how much movement we've seen downward, especially in equities. And let's just be honest, like I said, at a 5%, yield started to get exciting. People said, oh, I." better get in there. So I think there's really still, this could just be the tip of the beginning of understanding how serious financial conditions have changed. And if it's enough to actually warrant a point where we might actually have cuts at some point earlier than than some would, would have thought, like myself, who's been very pe- pessimistic about rate cuts. Hey, Katie, do you have a decent understanding of the conditions that would lead to those cuts? Well, usually in terms of this, I think we'd have to see pretty 
severe deterioration in financial conditions to see rate cuts, given the mandate of the Fed and the fact that the other factors they're really focused on um, have not come down to their target level. So the fact that inflation is sticky and the fact that we have a strong uh, workforce and that we have all of these conditions putting us in a good place, they have been pretty clear that they're going to keep us higher for longer until we can sort that out. Um, on the other hand, if we had some sort of very severe uh, drawdown or deterioration in credit um, that was clear, I think that they would have to act. So that, to me, would be the situation where we would see those rate cuts, is if you saw something in the credits markets or something in terms of consumers really struggling that would cause them to actually react. So the Fed put still exists, just at a much higher pain point. I would say probably yes. I mean, I think it always exists somewhere, but it's definitely moved a lot compared to what we liked in 2019 and before. Kelly, let's finish where we started. Given the uncertainty you now have about your position, why maintain the short? That's what I'm going to walk away from this conversation scratching my head about. Why maintain the short when it can be as expensive as it was on weeks like last week? So this is the point of trend falling. Systematic trading is about not double sort of using your emotion in the moment. And I think what works with trend following is following the data. And we just need more data to know the answer. And over longer periods of time, it turns out the market is actually quite good at giving us indications of where things are moving. And it's particularly short-term movements where they disagree, where you want to lean on your own gut, but you shouldn't because that's what systematic trading is really about. It's about measuring and following the markets and allowing the markets to tell you what the market, where we're going, as opposed to sort of my own personal view, unfortunately. Katie, thanks for the clarity yeah. on that point. Appreciate it. Katie Kaminsky there of Alpha Simplex. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Two major political parties remain unpopular in the United States. 56% of Americans viewing the Republican Party unfavorably. 58% saying the same thing of the Democratic Party. Mohammed Yunus, the editor-in-chief at Gallup, joins us now. Mohammed, help us out. I've been reading through this piece. Neither party is well-liked. You guys have pointed out that maybe the GOP has an edge on certain issues. Can we just talk, talk about the likability of both parties right now? Mohammed, how unusual is this? 
unfortunately, you know, it harkens to your Amtrak conversation earlier. Um, we're at a state right now in the United States when both parties are really not doing that great in terms of their favorability. It's nothing new, unfortunately. It's been quite a while since Americans had a favorable view of either party in the majority. Um, we're also at a time where there's a record high of Americans saying that they'd like to see a third party in American politics. Of course, easy to say I want more. It doesn't necessarily mean that that party would exist or actually be powerful. But we're also at a time, John and Lisa, where there's a high of people that identify as independents. And that is important, not only in the current moment, but also in our analysis over generations, what we find is that younger Americans today are actually sticking with that independent ID much further along their lifespan than previous generations, young folks. So certainly America is highly dissatisfied uh, with national government. We've talked about that a lot. They're really, in some ways, most dissatisfied with both parties. Um, that being said, today is a local election. It's really, I know it's so tempting for us to jump to 2024. Americans line up today to vote on local issues. And there's a huge difference in the way people perceive local government versus the national government here in the United States. So, Mohammed, just explain that a little bit more. What is the big difference between the two currently? Basically, trust and confidence. Americans have very low trust and confidence in the national government and national institutions. Perceptions of corruption are astronomically high. When you come to local government, though, people have a much more positive perspective on local government, whether it's the efficacy, transparency of local government and corruption, but also how they feel about their local governing uh, officials. So Americans line up in the ballot box today. They're hearing a lot of echo chamber on the national, what this means for 2024. But really, what they're going to be focusing on are local issues. Um, and the national conversation certainly will inform that. That's why things like abortion, uh, things that implicate attitudes about big and small government, for example, they're on the ballot box. Uh, they will be discussed. They're going to be, uh, they have been a focus of the campaign. We know in Ohio, there's a really big um, push on abortion. It'll be a really important weather vane in terms of whether or not Roe v. Wade's overturning has sort of faded the impact of that has faded or is still with us. I have to say, as you're talking about local elections and how different they are than the nationals, I think, well, they're probably not on TikTok, the local elections. They're probably not on Facebook. How much is it the social media echo chamber that polarizes people and gives them a worse than expected view of national politics in a way that local politics might be slightly immune? I think that's a great point, Lisa. It's much easier to sort of um, check the BS, if you will, on a topic or an issue when it's about where you live. You know that reality. You have direct information from people you know um, where you live. Uh, you can talk to your neighbors. You can talk to your local religious leaders or community leaders. With national politics, it's a very different thing. It really is t tends to have now become sort of a war of the propagandas, if you will, of both parties, where truth is very hard to identify, but both sides are absolutely out there to religiously convict you, uh, um, excuse me, um, to, re to religiously convert you to their worldview. So that's certainly a factor. But look, when it comes to 2024, and it's important for us to keep our eye on that, Mark, 
Everything that we've done with regards to national elections really comes down to one thing. Americans focus on the economy. The economy is king. It's not only king, it's king, queen, and bishop when it comes to picking a president here in the United States. And that's going to be a huge factor in where people place their votes in November 2024. But as you all know, we are light years ahead uh, from where that is in terms of assessing where the economy is going to be then. And that's going to be the major factor. When it comes to party advantages, the Republicans definitely have maintained their historic advantage in terms of Americans viewing them as more competent in keeping the country prosperous, keeping uh, the economy booming and keeping the country safe. That said, uh, how much are you looking to Glenn Youngkin today? Maybe there is going to be very much local issues that are decided, but the local issues have implications for whether Glenn Youngkin might be uh, the Republican candidate for presidency. Do you think that's a stretch? I think looking at the polls right now, that is a stretch. Um, It's hard to argue that President Trump is not the front runner of the Republican Party. Um, You know, every poll you do, every poll, what we've done, we don't do too many political polls anymore, but there are good polls out there. It's really hard to see um, somebody sort of astronomically jump ahead of him. Now, that being said, we haven't had a president in modern time that's facing the legal challenges that he's facing. And that's a whole other uh, sort of curveball that's being thrown here. It's not clear exactly what his situation will be come um, real kind of rubber meets the road in terms of November 2024. But, you know, there are still we heard from David Axelrod this week about the Democratic side. There's still a lot of movement in this uh, race. And I wouldn't rule out any surprises or sudden departures on either side. Up against the clock here, just to squeeze this in and finish where we started. You do mention in the piece that the GOP holds advantages on certain issues. Can we just breathe some life into that, Mohammed? Which issue specifically? There are really three issues in specific. One is keeping the country prosperous. Um, Republicans have a pretty sizable advantage, um, you know, to, to Democrats in terms of perceptions of keeping the country prosperous. The other one is keeping the country safe. As you know, we're now very focused on two uh, pretty significant conflicts across the world. Uh, hopefully that doesn't become a reality for us here in the United States. But as Americans focus more on security issues, Republicans do have that advantage in our polls. The final one is who's most competent to handle the most important problem facing the country. And what's fascinating about that question is that the most important problem facing the country, as I have said on this show many times right now, is actually poor leadership and government. So Americans identify the quality, the low quality of national leadership as the most important problem facing the country. So it's the most important problem, the economy and keeping America safe. Fascinating. Great to catch up, Mohammed. As always, it's good to see you. Mohammed Yunus of Gallup. Everyone's been pointing to oil prices. Why have they not gone up, given that there is a sort of existential risk and threat that seems to be escalating every single day in the Middle East? Joining us now to help us understand what exactly to uh, look for, Nadia Martin-Wigan, director at Svelland Capital. Nadia, I just want to start there. What do you make of the fact that we're seeing uh, crude traded on the NYMEX below $80 a barrel again today, despite what's going on uh, in Israel and in Gaza? Hello. Great to be on. Um, I think what we saw last week is that Hezbollah and Iran for right now, they're they're on the sidelines, right? They don't actually want to show an escalation of the war going on in Gaza right now. So that has taken off some of the risk premium. For the last 10 days, we've actually seen the implied volatility in the options market 
come down. So it's not even something that's happened just today. It's been for the last 10 days, that trend. I think in addition, when that premium, that initial shock goes away, as we saw was the case um, with the war in Ukraine by Russia, eventually, you know, the market starts to think about how to work around that. And for example, we've seen that freight rates have gone much higher. And part of that is when you look at it, it's almost like a risk balancing that, okay, if we can't flow through the Suez and we have to go around, then let's let's de-risk ourselves if things were to take longer. And we see that the freight market has actually priced that in as if they have to avoid the Suez, which they haven't had to do. So as a result, things have come down also in the oil market. Okay, so let's take a step back for a second, Nadia. If you're looking at freight producers that are already coming up with alternate routes that avoid the Suez Canal to avoid uh, potential, or the Straits of Hormuz, to avoid potential blowback from Iran, does this mean that oil prices are actually higher than where they would be at this point if there weren't this geopolitical overhang? Because it's actually being priced into the market in a material way. Yeah, if we look at what was happening to the market in oil before the October 7th attack, we could see that prices were coming off, right? We had a lot of pressure on refinery margins. We had physical crude trading poorly. You know, we've had the largest overhang in the West African market that we've had in years. We had more than 20, 25 million barrels unsold out of the November loading program. Um, So we saw that kind of weakening. And then this is where the market would like to rebalance. We saw the physical premiums come down for those grades, but the futures market has remained quite strong. And this is where we have to see that kind of rebalancing. When we look at kind of the momentum and what is happening to pure speculative traders, you know, the CTAs and so forth, that short-term momentum has been downwards, right? And that has put pressure, bringing us down to where we are now in WTI, you know, just above the 200-day moving average. If we look at that long-term momentum, it's still intact for a strong market, right? So there are still those longs in the market that we've had in since before all of this started. But again, the market is preparing in case something were to happen because you know th- things had been ticking along well in the Middle East. And we were about to have a deal between Saudi Arabia, the US, and Israel recognizing Israel, which would take off potentially a premium, right? And instead, we've moved in the opposite direction. How much is the U.S. becoming the swing producer at a time where there is consolidation in the shale patch and you are seeing companies try to uh, realize the value from their stores, basically pump the oil while it's still valued in the world? The deal of Exxon, for example, buying Pioneer, right? That really shows that they are focusing on the Permian, right? And what interestingly Exxon announced in their earnings call is that they believe that with their equipment and knowledge, they're able to bring in a total of 1 billion barrels of oil more out of those same assets that Pioneer was able to. So when we think about the terminal regular production rate in the U.S., you know, that goes from around 14 and a half million barrels per day to maybe 15 and a half million barrels per day. And the question is, when do we reach that? Right. August production was 13.1 million barrels per day. It will probably take two years, but of course, that depends on the short-term oil price and the signals, short-term meaning monthly, quarterly, and the signals that that yields to shale producers in terms of activity, right? A weaker oil price will slow that down. A stronger oil price will speed that up. So right now, given where prices are, do you Mm -hmm. expect more consolidation uh, to be expedited currently, or do you think that people are going to wait until prices go up a bit further? 
prices are reasonably strong, right? The the whole oil complex is in a good situation and making money. So when what we saw at the start of October is that demand was starting to get hit, right? We had producers selling crude for more than $100 a barrel. And then we saw, for example, companies like India really complaining. Part of that is because Russian crude has continued to crow, flow and we had price caps breached, right? So you were paying more than $60 a barrel, maybe you were paying $70 a barrel, and then on average facing more than $100 a barrel was becoming difficult. So I think we've been in a pretty comfortable space, you know, in the $80 range for everyone to make money. So it makes it ripe for consolidation and valuable resources. We don't really need things to move much higher. Do you think that all things being equal, this is going to be the range for the foreseeable future just because of the pushes and the pulls that seem to be uh, working in equilibrium? From a technical level, yes. But of course, things can suddenly change very quickly, both in the Middle East, you know, towards a negative, towards a positive. Um, so that can really shift things. And the number one thing to keep track of is that inventories were expected to draw quite steeply in the fourth quarter. And in the and so far in October, they only drew on land around 300,000 barrels per day. So the market is waiting for evidence that actually we have tightness led by these supply cuts and demand isn't waning. Whereas, you know, on the other hand, if it continues waning, then we could see further falls in price. Nadia Martin-Wigan of Svelin Capital, thank you so much for being with us. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.